Amen. So happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. And uh, to my dad who's watching online, happy Father's Day, dad. Thank you so much for everything you have done and provided for me and the foundation that you gave to me in my own life. So uh, this morning at 5.52 a.m., I received a text from my daughter, Audrey, who right now is over in North Carolina, and she's working at a youth camp. And I was delighted to receive this text, and she was expressing these really sweet things from, to me about uh, being her dad and this, that, and the other thing. And I was so warmed. And I don't know why, but in that moment, uh, a, a memory came back to me when Audrey was just a little girl, and I had one of those parenting fails, and at that point, uh, we had been working with Audrey uh, on a catechism, and a catechism is certainly, is, is simply a, uh, a statement of the Christian faith, and, and uh, this one came to us through a Christian hip-hop artist whose name was Shai Lin, and he had this rap that uh, was really beautiful. It went something like this, who is God? God is the universe's creator and sustainer, plus the only savior. There is no one greater. He's triune, holy, omnipotent omnipotent, omniscient, absolute, loving, sovereign, and righteous. These are a few of his attributes. How do we know this? Well, we know this from the Bible where God has revealed himself. Anything else is just an idol. What's the Bible about? Man's complete ruin and sin and what God has done in Christ to bring us to him again. What is sin? Anyway, it goes on. Uh, but th thank you. Thank you. So, so we, were, we were excited to have this for our kids, and they were learning it, and, and Audrey herself was very articulate. She's a very bright young girl, and I can remember, uh, you know, upon teaching this to her, I was really excited to go show her off to some of my friends at church, particularly those who were more theologically minded. And I remember uh, this one particular Sunday going to church and going out into the quad uh, in the social time after the worship service and running into this particular friend of mine who I respected. He was a bright theological mind. And I thought, boy, I'm really going to impress him with my daughter. And so I brought her and I'm like, you know, honey, go perform, you know. It's like, Audrey, who is God? You know, and she just looked at me and just went like this. And, uh, and, and I said, Audrey, 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 come on, who is God, you know? Come on, who is God, you know? And uh, speak, child, you know? And she just looked at me stubbornly, and my daughter is an Enneagram 8, and the quickest way to get her to do, uh, to, to not do what you want her to do is to keep insisting that you do it. And I kept insisting, and the more embarrassed I got, the more angry I got, have you been there? And... Um, and, and it, just, it just fell apart. And so rather than my friend thinking I was some great, impressive parent, he thought, this guy can't even get his daughter to obey him. You know, what's wrong with him? But, you know, I knew my daughter at that point at six or seven years old, she could see through what was happening. She's a smart girl. And she knew that in that moment as a dad, I wasn't so much interested in her theological formation. I was interested in her performing uh, on my behalf so that I could look better as a parent. And you know, uh, parenting and being a dad can be complicated, can it? And it's complicated because you and I are conflicted people. And for many of you, this is a complicated day. And it's because you, you've had broken relationships, some of you with dad, Maybe some of you are going into this Father's Day without somebody who was with you last Father's Day. 
And maybe you, you, you go into this day with some deep regrets of your own failures as a dad, or maybe the ways in which your dad has let you down. There are abusive fathers and fathers who abandon their kids, or just don't meet our expectations, and we just feel a sense of disappointment. And of course, that's not the full story. There are many, many of us, myself included, who I, I'm just deeply grateful for my dad and the foundation that he provided for me. But, you know, all dads have issues, right? You know, they, they sometimes talk, you know, the therapists talk about daddy issues, you know, but daddies themselves have a lot of issues, don't they? What I want to talk to you about today, though, is the, the reality and the truth that God is the ultimate father who has no issues. That the God we serve is a God who actually provides a, 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 an infinitely beautiful and stable foundation. His love, his fatherly care is something that even if we didn't have a good dad, he provides us something that we can build our own lives on. Now, I realize in even saying that, uh, for some of you, if you've been around the church for a while and maybe you're a little bit cynical like I am, uh, there are almost never any more cynical people in church than pastors. But you just think, oh, this is so predictable. Here we're talking about the fatherly love of God on Father's Day. And it sounds so cliche, doesn't it? But I want you to see that this truth is anything but cliche. That actually this is among the most profound and important truths you will ever encounter. J.R. Packer in his classic work, Knowing God, put it like this. He said, you can sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of God, uh, of being God's child, and of having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. He goes on and he says this, for everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian and as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God and our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of our adoption. But you know, that raises a question. What does it mean to have God as our father? And what does it mean to be a child of God? And to help us explore that question, which is not, the, the, the answer to that question is not a given. You know, because I know what it means to be a child and I know what it, it means to have lots of children. I have four of them. And I know the anatomy and the physiology required in order to bring a child into the world, and you do too. And so we, we know at a human level what it means to be a father. And of course, in American culture, we have our own notions of what parenting involves and what a good parent is. But what does the Bible mean when it says that we are children of God? What does the Bible mean when it talks about God as our Father? And it's those questions that I want us to explore today by looking together at John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And I want to set this passage in its context. It begins back earlier in chapter 2, verse 28, like this. 
It says, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John here is transitioning from the previous section to the next one with this word abide. Now, um, we're going to go back to the previous section. It's a section about apostasy, about those who depart from the faith. And I was going to preach that today, but I thought it might be better if I just skip over that one, come back to it later, because Father's Day, it sounded more appropriate to talk about the fatherly love of God than apostasy. Amen? And, uh, but apostasy is about departing from the faith. So he says, you don't do that. Stay grounded in Jesus and abide and remain in him. And then he says this, he transitions to the next section. And he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so John now is gonna move into this section where he talks about one of the core marks of a child of God is that if their father is righteous, they too will be righteous. And so in verse 28, he talks about practicing righteousness. He raises the issue again in chapter three, verse seven. He talks about practicing righteousness. Chapter three, verse 10, practicing righteousness. But then right in the middle, in between, you know, sandwiched in between this talk about practice of righteousness, John sort of has this explosion of praise about the fatherly love of God, which is just interesting because look at how the, this verse ends. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And after mentioning being born of God, it's like it triggers John into this explosion of praise. And look what he says next. He says, behold or see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. When it says there, see what kind of love, uh, in the original Greek, it's a, it's a phrase used to describe uh, something that's utterly foreign. He says, behold how strange and wholly other and foreign the love of God for us human creatures is that the eternal, infinite ground of all existence and being, the God who is wholly other, the God who in his very essence and being is holy, holy, and holy. This God has called us children of God. And he says, what kind of love is this that we should be called the children of God and this is what we are? And see, so he explodes in this praise about the reality that we are being children, that we have been called children of God, that we have been given a new title, a new vocation, a new identity. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, have been welcomed into the family of God and you are a child of God. God is not simply Lord he, that you serve. God is your father who loves you and cares for you. But again, what does it mean to be a child of God? And I want to just explore this question a little bit with you today. What does it mean to be a child of God? Now, we could answer that in a myriad of different ways because the Bible answers it in a myriad of different ways. We could, we could say that what it means to be a child of God is to be the object of God's special love and concern. You know, my wife, Alicia, and I, we love a lot of different things. 
Uh, We love a good meal. Uh, We love live music. We love Hawaii. Anybody else in the house love Hawaii? And and we love our dog Brutus, you know, little Bru-Bru, you know. And, uh, but you know, that which evokes our love more than anything else in all of the world are our four daughters. And if you're a parent, you know that to be the case. That which you love more than anything else in the world are your children. Your children are the deep, are, are, the, are the primal objects of your love and concern. And what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, we could say it means to be the object of God's special love and concern. And Jesus frequently invites us to consider God this way. He says, he, says, he, he speaks about God as our heavenly father. You know, and if, and if an earthly father will provide good gifts to his children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? And so what does it mean to be a child of God? It means to be the object of God's special love and concern. So we could talk about that, but we're not gonna focus on that. Uh, we could say that what it means to be a child of God is to be a recipient of God's restorative work of grace. You know, there is a sense in which all humans are the children of God because all humans are the creation of God. Uh, God brought uh, all of us into being. And I think uh, in the Gospel of Luke, the author picks up on this when he he charts Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. And when he gets to Adam, after giving a list of all of these names, of so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, so on and so forth, he gets to Adam and he says, Adam, the son of God. And Adam being the archetypal human It's as if he's saying, look, all humans in some sense are the sons and daughters of God. All of us owe our existence to a free act of unmerited, unearned grace, the grace of existing, the grace of being in this kind of world, uh, an existence that was donated to us from the very ground of existence and being, namely God. And of course, uh, humans have fallen from this high vocation and calling of being God's children. And we've come under the darkness of sin and death. And we live in the long, dark aftermath of an early rebellion against God. And as a result, we humans have lost our vocation. And we don't just bear the marks of God as our father, we also bear the marks of a darker, more heinous father, namely the devil in darkness, which produces all kinds of fruit in our life. So that the human race, rather than living as children of God, instead so often reflect the violence and the hatred and the abuse and the oppression of the evil one, namely the devil. The world and human beings are not the way they're supposed to be. But God, by his act of grace, invites us to become children of God. And what that means is he lifts us and he restores us to this place of being God's children who are called to bear God's glory in this world. And so we could say that what it means to be a child of God is to be a recipient of his restorative grace. But we're not gonna focus on that one. We could say that what it means to be a child of God is to have a new identity. You know, we live in the modern world where it's almost like part of what it means to be 
a human existing in modern America today is we carry the burden of needing to achieve and to be a success and to make something of our life. You know, for ages and generations, uh, most people didn't have to create their identity. They received it from their family, from their tribe, uh, from their religion. But in America, the unique burden we bear is we have to produce and we have to create and we got to self-present and we've got to look impressive. That's why I use my daughter to make myself look impressive, you know, is because you know, I've got to show how unique and special and how much better I am than every other parent out there or than every other person out there. But in the gospel, when we hear this, this, this truth that we are children of God, it means we have been given a new identity by free grace. You don't have to earn, you don't have to achieve, you don't have to self-present. You already today can rest in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You belong. You are a son and daughter of God. And so you have a new identity. So what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, it means to have a new identity. But we're not going to focus on that one either. Uh, we could say, you're going to say, Josh, you're going to get to the end of a sermon and you're going to be like, you focused on five things already. I know this is, this is a rhetorical device as a preacher to get six points in a sermon that um, is only really going to have one. But so we, we could say to be a child of God, it means to have a new family. Look around. You don't just get a father when you become a part of the church family. You get brothers and sisters that you're called to love. It means also to have new life. Uh, the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, the divine life. As John will say a little bit later in chapter three, the seed of God dwells in you. And so God begins to produce in you things that maybe are alien to your own fleshly nature, where you start having loves and desires that reflect God's own loves and desires. And so to be a child of God means to begin to bear some likeness to your father. And so we could talk about any number of these different facets of being a child of God. But the, the, the single thing I want you to see in this text about what it means to be a child of God, the claim here is that to be a child of God is to live with a breathtaking hope of an almost unimaginable future. To be a child of God means to have a breathtaking hope of, a, of an unimaginable future. God has brought you into this family, not simply to leave us as we are, but to take us into just this radical and stunning and breathtaking future. And look at how it puts it in the text. Right after he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are, he says this. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And then look what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now. You already, by free grace, have been brought into this family. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who believed upon his name. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. Do you see what he's saying? There is both a now and a not yet to being a child of God. In the now, you have a new identity, a new life. Uh, 
you, you have a new family. Already now you have all of that, but there is also a not yet, there is a future. And what is that future? He says, that future has not yet appeared. But he says this, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. So do you see in our text, he's speaking of the future of God's children. And I don't think this is something that we in the church talk about enough. Is our future hope as followers of Jesus and I want you to see how he names it. He, he, he uses three phrases to, to capture what our future hope is. And notice the first phrase, he speaks about the appearing of the Son of God, the appearing of Jesus. He says, verse two, we know that when he appears, when he appears, uh, another translation says, when he is manifest, and this word manifest is a word that John almost always applies to the first coming of Christ, when Christ came among us in flesh and when he bore humanity and walked among us. John tells us that in the incarnate Son of God, when Christ bore human flesh and walked among us and, and took on the role of a servant, and we watch him healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and casting out demons and we see him in his passion, in his passion, and his suffering, his humility, and, and going into the tomb. And in all of this, the glory and the beauty of God was being manifest to humanity. And remember, John says, we saw it, and we heard it, and we bore witness to it. And what John says is that, is that life of God, the eternal divine life of God that is so beautiful that has invaded human history in the person of Jesus that broke into our world completely unexpected outside of our categories where God's own beauty was manifest among us in Jesus. This same life, Jesus will come again. He will be manifest again in glory and he will return physically and bodily in other words, history is not simply the tale of an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. You know, sometimes it can feel like that, like the world is meaningless, you know, like life exists for nothing more than simply to entertain ourselves to death. But no, the cosmic history is moving toward an end, toward a telos, toward a culmination and on that day, the curtain will be pulled back and Jesus will be revealed in all of his glory. And we will witness the divine glory on display before humanity. And so we are moving in history toward another great invasion of God's beauty and his glory and love when Christ visibly and bodily returns and he is manifest again. And so he says, Christ will appear, but then he goes on. And notice the second phrase. He says, when he appears, we shall see him as he is. And John makes mention here of what the ancients called the beatific vision or uh, what Thomas Aquinas, the great uh, Catholic theologian, described as uh, the sight that will bring ultimate and final happiness and satiation. 
It is the human being's final end in which we finally attain perfect happiness and satisfaction when all one's desires are satisfied in God's presence to the degree that it cannot be added to and it cannot be lost. This is the sight that brings infinite joy. And what is the sight that will bring humans infinite joy? He says it is the sight of the manifestation of the beauty and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That infinite goodness and infinite love and infinite light and infinite power embody in flesh in Jesus manifest to all humanity. And this beauty on full display, and he says, we will see him. We will see him in his beauty. Or as Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We ultimately will behold his glory and beauty. That infinite beauty that is the ground and source of all beauty, the infinite love from which all of the love that we have experienced in this life is only the faintest echo that infinite goodness, that all of the best works of goodness and love in this world are simply just a glimmer we will see in full display before us. He says, we shall see him. And then he says this, and when we see him, we shall be like him. He says, when you see the glory of the son of God, you will be transformed into the likeness of God. This is the sight that will transform us. You know, the things we behold, the things you look at, the things that you put in front of you, they impact you, don't they? And have you ever, have you ever seen somebody and they behold a terrible sight, maybe a car crash that's horrific on the side of the road, and you look at their face, and something of the terror on the side of the road is reflected in the terror of their expression. Or maybe if you've watched, as I watched, my wife push four children into the world unmedicated through excruciating pain, you know, Mirrored on my own face when my wife is going through her contractions is my own pain of watching her. You tend to reflect what you behold. There's a sense in which our own humanity is something of a mirror to what we are looking at. My daughters went uh, to a, I actually got tickets for my daughters to take my father-in-law to go see the musical recording artist Bruce Coburn a couple weeks ago. Uh, Bruce Coburn is one of the great songwriters uh, of the last, you know, 50 years, and he's just this brilliant uh, writer and musician. My father-in-law loves him. It's one of his favorite uh, musical artists, and I was going to take him, but we had to go to a staff retreat. So the staff kept me from it. And so I told my daughters, I'm like, hey, why don't you guys take grandpa to a concert? So they took him down there. And it was a small venue down in Orange County. And they were just a few rows from the front. And at one point in the concert, they, my daughters texted me a little video 
And uh, it was just the face of my father-in-law as he was listening to Bruce Coburn sing this beautiful song called Pacing the Cage, which is his favorite of all the Bruce Coburn songs. And his eyes are closed and he has this, this, this look of bliss and beauty on his face. And it's like the beauty on the stage was being reflected. It was being mirrored in, in, in my father-in-law. What will happen to your humanity when you behold the beauty, the infinite beauty of God in all of his glory? John says, when you behold that glory and all of that infinite goodness and infinite beauty and infinite love, you yourself will be transformed. He says, when we see him, we will be like him. You know, C.S. Lewis in his famous uh, sermon called The Weight of Glory explores kind of this, this idea of what will happen in the end. And he says, isn't it enough that we would be with Jesus? And isn't it enough that we would see Jesus? Why is there this talk of something more happening? And C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, what more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more, something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, and to become part of it. And John says, we will see him and we will enter something into that beauty ourselves and we will be transformed. You know, do you realize what you are in for? You know, do we realize the greatness that we have been called towards? What God has in mind for us, you know, there's that bumper sticker that says Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven, you know? As if the sole purpose of Christ's coming was to take sinful people and to make sure that they are not condemned and that they're forgiven. Jesus says in, in him there is no condemnation and you are forgiven. But he has higher sights set for your life. He's gonna transform you from all of your brokenness into wholeness. He's gonna take those parts of you that have been enslaved and addicted and, and, and parts where you've been wounded and you've been broken because you've been hurt by other people and it's, you can't get out of it and you're trying to pull away from it and, and you keep falling back into the same patterns and, and, and Jesus is finally gonna burn that away in the brightness of his own beauty and glory and in the light of his beauty, you yourselves will be transformed and you will become beautiful. David Bentley Hart, the theologian, put it like this. He says, as the supreme beauty, he is the measure of all beauty who restores beauty to what has become formless through sin and death, who makes the beautiful yet more beautiful and who makes the exceedingly beautiful more beautiful still. This is what Christ has come into the world to do. 
God in Christ descended into death and darkness and into the mire of our humanity in order that the the humanity that is here that is mired and stuck in sin can be broken free from that and can be lifted with the ascended Christ and can share with him into our full and true humanity as children of God, the image of God restored in us, likeness to God transforming us. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, the command be ye perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. Listen, he says, he is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. And you see what John says in our text? He says, when we see him, we will be like him. And then he says, the one who has this hope within himself purifies himself even as he is pure. And I think what John is getting at is that when you are captivated by this end, when you lift your sights above the mundane and above the, the cliche that, oh, well, it's just human. We're just humans. And yes, we are, but we're broken, fallen human. In some sense, you are subhuman. We are less than what God intended us to be. He intends us to pulsate all through with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, and love for neighbor and for God that goes way, way, way beyond, you know, mere human, that, that is with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what he intends us to know and experience. And John says, when you're captivated by that end, it changes how you live now. He says, you actually start to move in that direction now. You start saying, I wanna know freedom from my addictions now. I wanna know a greater sense of security in God's love so I'm not always trying to prove myself through my children or through my, uh, my work or through whatever it is that you cling to to present to others. I'm safe and secure in God's love and I'm free and I can love others well now. And, 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 and I don't need to be overcome and stuck simply in despair and hopelessness. I can know joy and I can live with hope and I can, I can purify myself now even as he is pure. I can start moving in this direction. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us to ourself, but you have come into this world to free us from death and darkness. And you walked out of the tomb and you ascended to the right hand of your Father and you will come again in glory. We pray, God, that this might be the defining realities of our life, that we would know ourselves to be children of God, that we would live with hope of what we are to become. And that in this interim between 
your first invasion, Lord Jesus, and your next invasion where you make all things new. God, would you help us to live lives of pursuing purity and holiness and goodness and love before your face? And would you strengthen us now with your love as we turn to the table? And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.